Hello and welcome to this Dialogues at Fulcrum podcast. It's part of a series of conversations with distinguished guests hosted by the ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute. I'm Li Ho-An, a Fulcrum editor and senior fellow with the Malaysia Studies program. And I'm Francis Hutchinson, a senior fellow also with the Malaysia Studies program. We are speaking again with Kari Jamaluddin, who is an ICS visiting fellow this year. Welcome, Kari. How are you today? Thank you. Good to be back. Now, our previous podcast in May was on the theme, Defining Tests for UMNO, ANWAR, and the Unity Government. Now, do look up that episode if you haven't yet. And a few things have happened since. For the chattering class, Malaysian politics is the gift that keeps on giving, for better or for worse. Kyrie will know as co-host of the popular podcast, Kalwas Kajak. Things move so fast that the main arena of the defining tests we discussed in May, the six peninsula state elections held on 12 August, is already overshadowed. Malaysians love acronyms and the latest is DNAA, discharge not amounting to acquittal of Zahid Ahmadi's corruption case. We will get to that, but we don't want to be just caught up in the moment because the voting outcomes in Kedah, Kelantan, Trunganu, Negeri Sembilan, Penang and Selangor have provided a reality check and a political barometer that offer many insights into contemporary Malaysia. So our main launchpad for discussion today is another acronym, PRN 2023, Pilihan Raya Negeri, Malay for State Elections. Now, while we are touching on a broad range of issues, let me just remind us of the breadth of experience that Kyrie uh, brings to our discourse. He has served as UMNO Youth Chief for almost a decade and Member of Parliament for Rumbau for three terms, as well as Minister of Youth and Sports, Science, Technology and Innovation and Health. He is currently not with a political party and I think he will be speaking primarily as an ICS Research Fellow. Now let's begin at the ground level. At PRN 2023, Kyrie, you campaigned for Bersatu's Harrison Hassan in the Joram Selangor seat and for Amno's Rizal Merikan in Bertam, Penang. And you have publicly stated that you were showing support for personal friends. Of course, any observer will note that one is of Bersatu and the other of Amno, which means you witnessed local campaigns on both sides. And both Harrison and Rizal also won. Now, can you share with us some things that stood out to you? Differences in the campaign style and messaging, party machinery and coalitions, and the people's reception of the candidates? Thank you, Hokan, and thank you, Francis, for having me back at the Fulcrum podcast. The first thing that stood out was that both candidates that I stumped for won, so I'm relieved. But seriously, um, I think there were some big differences in both areas, which I think speak to some of the bigger trends that emerged from Malaysia's state elections involving six states. So I decided to campaign for friends since I'm now a free agent after being expelled from AMNO in January. I was not restricted uh, to campaigning for a particular coalition or a particular party. I was able to go and help personal acquaintances. In this case, uh, the first place that I went to was Jaram, which is a suburban constituency in the industrial state of uh, Selangor. And the candidate that I supported, his name is Harrison Hassan. He was formerly in AMNO. We came through the ranks together in AMNO Youth in the late, late 90s. He was my proposer when I stood uh, for the parliamentary constituency of Sungai Buloh at the last general election. So I had a 
debt of gratitude that I had to repay. So I went down one afternoon for a meet the people session. It was uh, just high tea over tea uh, in a housing area, a suburban middle class Malay housing area in Jiram, which is about 40 minutes from Kuala Lumpur city center. I felt, and this I think was quite indicative of many areas where there were a large Malay middle-class suburban population that Prikata National had an easy sell. This was a seat where, if you look at the results from the parliamentary elections, so Jiram is a state ward that is within the Kuala Selangor parliamentary constituency, that parliamentary constitu constituency almost flipped at the general election. So Zafrol, who's now the trade minister, went up against Dr. Zulkifli Ahmad, who was a former health minister in Kuala Selangor, almost flipped the seat. So many observers felt that Jaram and other seats around there, the Malay suburban middle-class seats around there, would be ripe for the taking uh, due to the Malay wave, the PN wave, or whatever wave you want to call it. And sure enough, uh, from the interaction that I had uh, on that particular afternoon, many of the residents who came out, they were without any party affiliation. So you can tell immediately because they weren't wearing Barisan national shirts or Basatu shirts or whatever. They were just ordinary people, residents of that housing area. Uh, and they uh, freely confessed to me that they were previously UMNO members or UMNO supporters and that they are going to transfer their vote to PN. And that kind of validated what a lot of uh, the research came that was coming out of the Mal Malaysian Studies Program in ISIS that there was going to be a high transferability of vote from BN, Amno, to Prikata National and not to Pakatan Harapan. Now, the other place I went to, I think a day after that or a couple of days after that, was to Penang, where another good friend of mine, one of my closest friends in Amno still, uh, Rizal Marekan, former uh, minister also, contested in the Bertam State Ward or state seat. And that particular state ward is within the Kalabatas Federal Constituency. Now, this is interesting because Rizal was two terms Member of Parliament for Kalabatas and Kalabatas was Abdullah Badawi, former Prime Minister's uh, seat for nine, ten terms, maybe since the late nine, uh, 70s. Yeah, since the late 70s. And it had never fallen to pass and Rizal lost in November of last year, the general election. So he had something to prove and he came uh, back and said, look, I'm not going to disappear for five years. I'm going to come straight back to the state election. He chose one of the state wards, the state ward in which I think he was strongest in, Bertam, uh, and he made his stand there. And I felt that um, although Rizal won in the end, it was a tough fight. Because mainland Penang, so Bertam, Kapalabatas, that's on the mainland, that's not on Penang Island, is really where Prikata National Pass uh, and Basatu made a lot of inroads at the federal elections and during the state elections. And Rizal was only one of two uh, AMNO uh, candidates to prevail in the state elections. The rest all lost. So it was tough and I had to come down personally, appeal to the Bertam voters and say, look, Rizal is the natural successor to Pala Abdullah Badawi, who had uh, developed that area, was well known in that area, really, really trying to convince people not to look at Barisan National, the flag, because a lot of baggage is associated with that. And I'm sure we'll touch on that later, but focus on Rizal. And, and he managed to, to get through. So I think those two seats 
encapsulate what really happened and transpired during the state election, which is that largely Malay areas, uh, rural, suburban areas, were ready to flip for Prikata National, PM, and Marisa National, or rather AMNO, had a really tough time in uh, trying to win over the, the Malay votes. And from your experience on the ground, and as you've shared with us, you were in two different constituencies, different coalitions. Uh, did the campaign experience, the reaction from people, inspire you or not to join or rejoin <laughs> either of the coalitions? Well, I have to admit, I'm happy being a fellow at ISIS right now, and I hope that I can continue my affiliation with ISIS. So that really foreshadows the answer, which is, I don't think I'm in a rush to enter party politics in Malaysia in the short term. I don't think anything happened during the state elections to inspire me or presented itself as a pull factor for me to go back into politics. I think one thing is certain is that there is still tremendous, tremendous contestation for the Malay ground. And I think if you look at the state elections, PN ended up with a lion's share of the Malay voters and their support from the Malays. And if you project this onto a potential GE16 scenario, you probably will have a hung parliament again. And um, it's not that I don't want to rejoin politics because I don't want to be involved in a hung parliament situation. I'm just saying that a lot of things can happen from now until the general elections in three to four years. Um, and I mean, coming back to sort of the results and the trajectory, when we look at the results, actually for the first time in, a, in a quite a while, what people anticipated to happen, happened, mm. right? So it wasn't like GE15 and who could have predicted that it turned out that way. Uh, so when we come to the state elections, very much the consensus was it was going to be 3-3, which it was. However, once we go a little bit deeper, then we come to your, your uh, statement just before, which is about the Malay ground. And we do see important inroads. Well, number one, of course, we see really kind of almost entirely taking the northern states by Perikata Nacional. And then when we come to the Pakatan Harapan, or unity government-led states, of course, there were inroads. Um, in some recent writings of yours, you've, you've been arguing that sort of going forward, Anwar has a number of choices, right? So he can deepen the cooperation with UMNO, he can stop the cooperation with UMNO, and or he can reach out to Bursatu. So which of, could you talk us through these scenarios? Which do you think are perhaps, which is the most likely and, and what are sort of perhaps some of the decision points that, that he will come to, he will have to cross in making this decision? So I think the biggest concern that Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim will have from the state elections is precisely what many commentators, including ISIS and writings and articles in the fulcrum have alluded to, which is Malay support. Dr. Ong Kian Meng, who's also a visiting senior fellow at ISIS, on my podcast said, based on his preliminary calculations, even in the state of Selangor, which is considered a Pakatan Harapan stronghold, where they've been able to form the government over three successive elections, the support for Prikata National, which is the coalition between Bersatu and the Islamic Party PAS, uh, the Malay support for P PN was 70%. That's a lot. That's extremely high. 
So that highlights the sort of pressure that Anwar must be facing because let's face it, over the last eight or nine months since he's become prime minister, he spent a lot of political capital, as we discussed in our last podcast, on trying to shore up Malay support. And that hasn't yielded any dividends or rather it's yielded very little dividends at the state elections. So he really has to think about how he's going to break this conundrum, really. Now, what he thought he would do was to obviously project UMNO as the Malay vehicle within the coalition of coalitions, this is Francis's term, of BNPH, UMNO as the vehicle to get the Malay support, UMNO as the political platform to reclaim the Malay support, and UMNO failed. Uh, as we all know, UMNO only won 17% of the seats that they contested at the, at, the G, at the state elections. And it's not really just the top line figure, 3-3, Francis. It's also, if you drill down deeper, although Negri Similan looks like a comfortable win for PHBN or PH UMNO, in fact, if you look at the seats, I think there were a handful of seats that they won under a majority of 1,000. So it's really no great success. And I think the PN wave has really come all the way down to Slango and Negeri Milan. The only reason why we don't talk about Perak is because there was no election there. But if you look at the Perak state results, um, Amno is gone. Amno is a minority Mantribusa there. So I think coming back to the question, what does he do, Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim? He can double down on Amno, and it appears as though he is doubling down on Amno. And this comes to Hok An's point earlier about the DNA, this decision by the public prosecutor to drop the case uh, against Zahid Hamidi, the Deputy Prime Minister and President of Amno for now, and hope that Amno can recover over the next three to four years. Or he chooses a different tack which is something perhaps more out of the box, maybe relook at uh, other arrangements as unpalatable and unlikely as it may sound right now. There are clearly shifting sands in Malaysian politics. So that's why I said it is possible that he might look at other partners in trying to reclaim the Malay ground. And also we cannot rule out the fact that perhaps the most popular and influential UMNO leader until today is somebody who now still sits in jail, and that's Najib Razak, the former prime minister. So what happens with Najib Razak and a possible pardon? Some people are saying that since you've dropped the case against Zahid, then everything's on the table. Uh, I'd like us to travel uh, north again, and I think it's really to unpack a little bit further You know what you have already said. We, we will come to that, that question, uh, or what you have just uh, brought up again. <laughs> uh, but uh, about uh, expanding on what you said about uh, Bertam, and I think, yes, you know, it was expected, Kedah, Kelantan, and Trungganu, the overall result, but the magnitude of it, right, the sweep, passes uh, Perikatan sweep in Trungganu, and then Amno's wipeout in Kedah, I think, uh, you know, exceeded most people's uh, expectations. But what NNPN's gains in Salamo is as well. Right? What do these say about the state of Malay politics and especially the PAS Bersatu alliance? So I think there's a confluence of a few things going on here. I think one is the Malay momentum is firmly on the side of uh, Prikata National since the general election. 
And I think the general election results woke the Malay electorate up to the fact that the Malay ground is being carried by Perikatan National. And that, that kind of gives confidence and momentum. It's, it's a, I don't know if it's animal spirits in politics, but it's something which creates this momentum that gets people stronger once you've established yourself as the, <clears throat> the representative, the vehicle represents the Malay public, then you automatically create uh, a following for yourself. And, and I think Pekata National were very successful in doing that one. Secondly, I think the management, coalition, inter, intra-coalition management within Pekata National was very, very amicable. You hardly saw any dissent within the parties towards accommodating Basatu for PAS and PAS for Basatu. It was almost very, very seamless and, and amicable. There were no complaints about how seats were di being distributed, apart from, of course, maybe that one Garakan seat. But otherwise, um, I, I, I really didn't hear a lot of bickering, uh, at least public bickering, between Basatu and PAS. And there's this unwritten rule in the Prikata National Coalition that even though PAS is bigger electorally, but Basatu takes the lead as far as the leader of the opposition is concerned, the chairman of the coalition is concerned. And that, that goes a long way in, in Malay politics, that there's no infighting. Third, I think the issue of AMNO not having a viable alternative, AMNO-PH not having a viable alternative in Kedah, in Klantan and Tranganu is also a key factor here. If you look at um, what happened in Kedah, AMNO NPH, BNPH didn't even nominate uh, a candidate for Menteri Besar. They couldn't do it in Tringanu either. Uh, and they were led largely by leaders of yesterday. In Kedah, it was people like Mafus Omar from uh, Amana, Mahaze Khalid from AMNO, people who've way past their sell-by date. And Tringanu also, Ahmad Said, once Menteri Besar many, many years ago, still recycled as Menteri Besar. So that's the third point. The fourth point, fourth and last point is, of course, they managed to present icons of their own. I mean, two in particular, and perhaps we might discuss this uh, further. Uh, one in Kedah, Sa uh, Sanusi, who is this larger-than-life figure for, for PAS, and you know he really carried the elections in Kedah and probably elsewhere. And on a lower key, but no less effective manner, Dr. Samsuri Mokta in Tranganu, who led past to a 32-0 drubbing of the, of the PHBN coalition, or coalition of coalitions. So I think all these factors coalesce together to, to really you know, give them the knockout punch. And, and on this point, I mean, it does seem that that PAS is sort of on the cusp of a generational change. So we have exactly the figures that you've mentioned coming up. Uh, Sanusi, who has his sort of more direct, engaging style. And then we have Samsuri, which is, of course, more technocratic, more policy-focused. Can you sort of talk us through the role that these people and their images may play in PAS and with the Malay electorate going forward? So there's always been this view in the Malay populace, but also among Malaysians in general, 
that passes this Islamist party led by clerics. Um, and I suppose in Malay, the pejorative sometimes would be Patlebai, uh, you know, wearing turbans and things like that. I think past of today is very, very different from this caricature of past being led by these village clerics. Past today is a highly sophisticated party. Uh, I think they have a political machinery and political operations that are, if not the best, probably second to Amno, but increasingly coming close to Amno's sophistication as far as nationwide machinery is concerned. But I think the most important and significant change that you see in past right now is the emergence of the non-clerical leadership in past. And although they still give a lot of deference to the clerics and to, of course, the president, who is the chief ideologue, Tuan Guru Haji Hadi. But Hadi, to his credit, has come to the conclusion that while he may still guide the central ideology of PAS, as far as governance is concerned, he's willing to delegate that authority to professionals, which I think is strategically a brilliant move. So in terms of the ideological core pass, that's still safeguarded by the clerics and by Hadi and those around him. But as far as presenting governance to the people is concerned, they're saying, look, we're not governing this from the mosque or from uh, our theocratic council, but rather we are giving people like Samsuri, who's a mechanical engineer, in, uh, in aerospace, or Sanusi, who is a grassroots leader, uh, or the Menteri Besar in Perlis, who was a former teacher. So out of the four Menteri Besars of PAS, which is Tunganu, Klantan, Kedah, and Perlis, only one is a cleric in Klantan. The other three, the other three MBs are, are, are not from the, the clerical class or from the, uh, from the ulama class. So you, you, you see this the sea change of leadership within past, not just at the top, but also cascading down, where candidates are balanced. They are, of course, the clerics still there, the religious teachers, those with religious degrees, but increasingly, increasingly those from a technocratic background. So I think this, uh, this SNS, the Sanusi and Samsuri, of course, both very different, but both not coming from the cleric class uh, is significant. And I think if PAS is able to show that they can deliver in these states over the next five years, then they may be able to unlock their conundrum. So Anwar's conundrum is he can't get Malay support. The PAS's conundrum is that they cannot get non-Malay support. So who breaks the conundrum first wins. Now let's look to the uh, Penang Selangor and Negeri, so the PHBN incumbent seats that, or states, right, when, and they held, held their ground. I think they were in a situation where, you know, they've held it for a few terms, and so they need to also make the case for continuity, but also refreshing changes, right, in terms of new lineups and so on. And we see that they did present, uh, you know, new slates and uh, changeover of candidates and so on. In terms of the leadership, and not just top leadership, but I guess prominent persons, 
uh, on on the PHBN side, did any stand out to you? I say maybe starting with the Mantri or other higher profile people um, in making a mark uh, on on the election. So I think in all three states, PHBN benefited because they had incumbent Mantri Mantri or chief ministers who were relatively they weren't tainted. They were quite well liked, and at the at, at worst, they were probably neutral uh, to people who may not have liked them. So, uh, Chao Kanyao in Penang uh, led a largely competent first term as chief minister. He is not abrasive like his predecessor, Lin Guaneng. He is relatively well liked and quite a sensible chap. I worked together with him during the pandemic. And he's he's a he's a nice guy. Comes across as a nice guy. Similarly, in Negris Milan, um, Aminuddin, that Aminuddin uh, also comes across as pretty harmless guy. Uh, not doesn't have any scandals. Hasn't really put uh, a foot wrong in 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 a in a major way. And in Selangor, Aminuddin came across also quite well. Uh, there were polls leading up to the state elections uh, showing him polling quite highly as far as an incumbent Menteri Besar. So they were lucky in a sense that their projected candidate as Menteri Besar or chief minister, the incumbent, were uh, well received. So I think in that sense, they, they had an advantage. But I think the alarming point is that even with that advantage, they ceded significant ground. You would think that having a strong incumbent going into a state election, people will give them the benefit of the doubt and give that particular Menteri Besar, all three Menteri Besars going for their second term, a ringing endorsement. But it was anything but. And uh, when we look at the, the um, performance of Pakatan Harapan and Barisan Nasional, um, I mean, a lot of the benefits were expected to come from, number one, fielding candidates in certain seats, and number two, if you like, not necessarily a meshed campaign machinery, but at least various forms of campaign machinery that could function well together. Uh, did you see this, and are there any lessons to be learned for the unity government for the next electoral context contest? So from what I understand and from what I have been told, the Pakatan Harapan members, leaders, supporters, they were in awe of Barisan National's machinery, rather AMNO's machinery. In fact, they only had good things to say about AMNO's machinery. And that's because AMNO excels at retail politics. It has the best retail reach. It has a branch in every single village and every single kampong in Malaysia, 15,000 plus branches or whatever it is. And no other party has this apart from probably PAS. And even then, they don't quite have the machinery that uh, AMNO has. And I was told that AMNO, especially the women's wing, and you know, largely the machinery is really, really made up of the loyal Wanita AMNO, the AMNO women's wing, uh, through 101% at PH candidates. And this was probably a plus point for the PHBN coalition of coalitions 
but it wasn't enough because at the end of the day, no matter how strong your retail politics is, if at the wholesale level, rather, you know, national issues, ideas, uh, Malay identity and things like that, the momentum is not with you, then it doesn't matter how good your retail politics is, uh, it, you're not going to get anywhere. So I think the plus point is they recognize that there's strong machinery on the minus. Uh, they think that AMNO as is, while it has a great machinery, it doesn't, it comes with tremendous baggage. And that's why AMNO is, is a liability for the PHBN coalition of coalitions now. I just uh, follow up a little bit uh, on that. I mean, there was GE15, and I think one of the reactions was about this wave. I mean, I think we need a new color to call it because it's clearly more like green, right? And I think some will call it a PN wave. Uh -huh. But the hesitation was that, well, it's we don't know yet. And also, is it, is it for or is it a protest? Now we have also the state elections. And sometimes, and, and, and I'm hearing also sort of similar reaction, a certain hesitancy still to, you know, to, to go with this narrative that there is a wave, that there is something structurally different or real uh, momentum, that it's still largely a protest. So what is, what is your reading? I mean, is, you know, has there already uh, PN secured itself a new uh, base? Or is there still a very broad, uh, independent, right, uh, you know, segment of the population that could swing either way? You know, that's a really great and tough question, Hogan, because that 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 is something that political scientists and political analysts grapple with all the time. When does a negative vote turn into a positive vote? And by that I mean, when does a protest protest vote solidify into actually a a, a vote of support uh, for that particular party rather than by default? I think it's still a work in progress. I think it is more of a positive vote at the state elections than it was at the general election, for sure. At the general elections, conventional wisdom, including possibly the three of us, we thought that Basatu would be out and probably left with uh, a handful of, of members of parliament and they exceeded expectations. And I think that was largely due to a, a negative vote. If people didn't want BN, Amno or Zahid rather, so they had to throw it to, to Basatu. I think that now is increasingly changing because Basatu and PN are coming out with uh, their own policy platform. Now, one can argue that that platform is still largely, largely consists of issues around 3R, race, religion, royalty, and things like that, Malay cultural uh, or identity politics issues. But at least they are trying to fashion a policy platform that is not just we are better than AMNO or you know you don't like AMNO, throw your votes to us. So I think as we go along the way and as they try to prove themselves in the states that they govern, which uh, there are four, and in which uh, the states in which they make up a sizable opposition, then they will be able to demonstrate to people that next time around, it's not just a, a protest vote against AMNO, uh, but you actually want to give it to us. And I think Selangor is going to be very important. And if I were to identify one leader who can influence this transition from a protest vote to a positive vote for Besatu uh, Pass, is Azmin, because I suspect that he might be appointed the leader of the opposition in Selangor. And it's not a small number. They have 20 plus uh, assembly people in the Selangor State Assembly. That's a, that's a sizable opposition. They've denied PHBN the two-thirds majority already. You can actually come up 
with a very, very credible opposition there to say that, hey, you know, we're, we're giving it to them not because we don't like PHBN, but because we want to give these guys a chance after this. So Slangor is going to be another, uh, the focal point again in the next four years. Hmm. And so uh, what about Amno? How does it rebuild? How does it regain relevance? And you can also expand a bit more on the DNAA, discharge not amounting to acquittal of Zayed Hamidi, Amno's uh, president. Now, is this a boon? Is this a bane for the party? Well, let's start with being charitable and examine how it could be a boon to Amno uh, and, and not be unfair about this. It could be a boon to Amno in a sense that they put to bed this question of his court case for now because it's a discharge not amounting to acquittal, although I doubt that he'll be charged with it again. It's, uh, I think it would, although some people say that, you know, this is a sort of Damocles dangling over his head, I really doubt that he'll be charged with, uh, with the 47 charges again. So Amno can say that, look, you know, you used to not want to support us because the president had corruption cases and abuse of power cases in the court. Now that's gone. So I suppose that's the, the plus side, the upside from this. Now the downside is unfortunately much, much deeper than the, the upside, which is that I think most Malaysians don't believe that this is the end of that story. And if at all they believe that it is the end, it is an end that has been manufactured and, and constructed for the benefit of both Zahid and Anwar so that Anwar can continue to be Prime Minister. And it will continue to alienate Malays who previously supported AMNO uh, into permanently transferring their votes to PN. So a large part of the research that I was doing before the state election was about vote transferability. So I wrote a perspective piece on how that might turn out in Slangor under certain circumstances and certain turnout situations. Um, but I was just looking at it in the context of the state election. So now I believe that what has transpired over the last few days with Zahid being let off basically scot-free uh, is that that transferability may end up becoming permanent for now. As in those who were UMNO supporters voted for PN during the state elections, maybe again as a protest vote. But I think with what's happened, that might just stay there unless something dramatic happens within AMNO, which is a leadership change, uh, which I doubt will happen because I don't think that for Zahid, for instance, that this is the end of the road. I've, you know, I freed myself from the charges and I can retire gracefully. I don't think he's that kind of character. And I think uh, he will continue to consolidate his position. And that's at the detriment of AMNO because I think it's been well established that the Malay electorate is or has a problem with the AMNO leadership. The midterms have taken place, as some people have called this, and the administration has survived. And one can expect that there could be some degree of stability now, at least for the next little while. Um, what do you think we should look to? And, and what do you think the Anwar administration is thinking of doing as it unveils things like, you know, the midterm review of the 12th Malaysia plan or the new industrial master plan. Can you talk us through perhaps some of the signature policies and what they could be thinking? So I think this is a great reprieve for the prime minister 
he's got past the general election. He has basically been able to fashion a coalition of coalition from nothing, coalition of coalitions from nothing. And uh, I think he's managed to scrape through the midterm state elections just about to ensure that he has a clear run for the next four years. So I personally don't believe that there will be any further disturbances or anything that can rock the stability of the Anwar government for now. But I think having said that, he will now maybe limp on in a sense that he knows he doesn't have Malay support. He's not, he doesn't, this is not his mandate. And let's be very clear about this. This, this was a, a unity government at the behest of the monarch. So the big question is whether he will bold, be bold enough to, to make the reforms necessary in terms of economic reforms, social reforms, or will he play it safe for the remaining four years? That's a big question. Secondly, I think his strategy of strengthening the PH and BN coalition will depend on how he utilizes the time that he has. The biggest asset that he has right now is time. He has four years. He doesn't have any more big electoral challenge at least over the next three years before perhaps the state elections come in in uh, two and a half three years with Sabah and then with Johor and Malacca he does he's, he's got a clear run so really it's how he utilizes this time to show that his policies have an impact on day-to-day -day, uh, livelihoods for the Malaysian public and that's where he needs to bring all these big plans, the industrial master plan, the, uh, the energy trans, uh, transition roadmap, the Madani economic narrative, uh, trying to attract uh, new investments of greater economic complexity. He needs to bring that down to the level of the people's economy. Because if, let's face it, after three years, all you have is announcements of big investments and even actualization of big investments, but it doesn't have an impact on wages, on employment, on business development, then you're going to go into the next elections with this deficit of Malay support and really not having delivered much uh, in terms of the economy. So I really think he needs to hunker down and make sure that whatever it is that he's planned and some of it, um, some of it is actually good, good stuff good plans but that's always been the case in malaysia good plans but sorely lacking in execution and also sorely lacking in how ordinary people end up uh, benefiting from these plans excellent well today has been our second serving of a discussion with you Kyrie. thank you very much for your time um as always there's a lot to take away and for me one thing i will take away is that very nice way you had of encapsulating you know, who can crack the conundrum first. So that will be, as we call it here, my tapao, what I take with me. Okay. So thank you very much on behalf of, of ISIS and the Malaysia Studies Program for joining us today. We hope that we will have yet another serving again in the near future. Congratulations.